Well, hey there, and welcome to the Green Divas Radio Show. I'm your host, Green Diva Meg, and I've got a lot of great things in store for you today. Uh, First, I just want to kind of acknowledge that April is National Poetry Month. Anyone who has been listening to the show for the past few months knows that I often read a poem in the opening of the show. It also happens to be Earth Month, containing Earth Day, April 22nd, which of course should be every day, but well, okay, here's an Earth Day poem for you all anyway. Earth Day by Jane Yolen. I am the earth and the earth is me, each blade of grass, each honey tree, Each bit of mud and stick and stone is blood and muscle, skin and bone. And just as I need every bit of me to make my body fit, so earth needs grass and stone and tree and things that grow here naturally. That's why we celebrate this day. That's why across the world we say, as long as life as dear as free, I am the earth and the earth is me. I thought that was kind of clever. Anyway, I just want to also mention that this weekend is Green Festival in New York, the 15th through the 17th, and I'll be there. I'm speaking at 2.30 on Saturday the 16th on a panel about media, and I'll just be roaming around with my mobile recording stuff and my camera. So hope to see you there. You can go to greenfestivals.org and get all those deets. Meanwhile, just want to let you know what's on the website right now, thegreendivas.com. Uh, we have our latest post and podcast from Greenpeace, uh, Greenpeace GDs. This one goes along with the recent podcast about President Obama's climate legacy, and why we need to get fossil fuel money out of politics. There's a great video of Hillary getting kind of testy when asked by Greenpeace's Eva Resnick Day about campaign contributions from the fossil fuel folks. And that has really sparked a thing. And we have another great Greenpeace podcast coming up. So look for it in the next week or two with Eva Resnick Day. Anyway, so that's kind of a cool post and podcast. Please visit thegreendivas.com for that. And I also did another silly video. This one, I get a lot of requests for making my uh, recipe for making vanilla cashew milk. And I always tell people it's really easy and I don't think they believe me. So I did this little video. It's a one minute fun little video. And there's a post to go with it on the website right now. So go check it out. Um, And, you know, while you're at it, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Because at least once a week now, I'm doing a new fun tutorial video or some kind of video. And uh, they're short and hopefully informational and entertaining. Okay, so this week on the show, uh, our features with Michael Green who, of course, is the executive director of the Center for Environmental Health. He recently went to Congress to speak about the Flint, Michigan water crisis. So he's talking to us in in this segment about kind of a greater context. He's got such a great way of looking at things. And, of course, he does spin and give us some positive stuff. So, you know, he's always a, a great inspirational conversation, if you will. Uh, We have Green Divas in the Garden. This week we have a two-minute segment with Joey and Holly Baird. We haven't heard from them in a while, the Wisconsin Vegetable Gardeners. And they managed to get a lot in two minutes about beets this week. So check that out. And we have Green Divas Eco Sexy with Lindsay Hageman. And this one is about, uh, it's an interesting conversation about erotic community, what that means. And, uh, yeah, you're just going to have to listen to that. Last but definitely not least is a really cool segment with Laura Son, who is the director of Bonnaroo Sustainability. You know, that really cool music festival that goes on every year in Tennessee. 
Anyway, they just came out with their sustainability report from last year. It's pretty darn impressive how they managed to mitigate the impact of 80,000 people gathering to party for a weekend and listen to music. So listen up and check it out. In the meantime, I'm really hoping y'all will connect. I'm seeing much more folks connecting with us on Twitter, Instagram, and social media out there. Find me at Green Diva Meg, Instagram, Twitter, and of course, Facebook, uh, at Green Diva Meg, and The Green Divas, The Green Divas on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, The Green Divas Radio Show. We're on Pinterest, Google+, and as I mentioned, our YouTube channel is starting to get pretty active, so we'd love for you to check us all out. Meanwhile, Sit back, relax, enjoy the rest of this show, and have a great green week. Wishing you had a green thumb or want to learn more about sustainable gardening outdoors and in? Expert green divas and dude gardeners share tips for everything from composting to growing herbs in your kitchen. Listen to the Green Divas Green Thumb for low-stress gardening tips. This is Gardening in Two Minutes. One of the staples in our garden each and every year is beets. There's many different varieties to pick from, from heirloom organic to hybrid. But there are some techniques that can help you grow beets better. When growing beets, you want to keep in mind that you want to put them in the soil when it's about 50 degrees or higher consistently overnight. So this is during the nighttime, your soil temperature and not the outside temperature, the temperature of the soil. One advantage that you could do is get a jump start on your beets by starting them inside in a container. Yes, yes, you can do this. But the key is to not let them grow in the container any more than four weeks. You're wanting to develop top growth as well as some roots, but you don't want the, the beet to begin to feel like it's time to put on a bulb, the edible portion, in the container. When you plant beets... They come in not seeds, but clusters, and these clusters consist of five, six sometimes seeds in this bundle. That's why when you plant them, you have to thin them out so you have one beet per every so many inches so the bulbs will develop properly. When those plants are create their own seed bundles like that, that's just nature's way of ensuring that they do germinate. Beets will typically take... 40, 60, 70 days based on your variety. And you can also eat the beet green tops if you so choose to. There's a variety of different ways to make these edible and eat these from pickling to roasting to even fermenting. So if you've never grown beets before, there's a variety of different colors available. We encourage you to take a look at and see if beets would be something that would be good in your vegetable garden. For more information on beets, our weekly video production, as well as our free downloadable digital quarterly magazine, you can find all that information at thewisconsinvegetablegardener.com. For the health-conscious organic gardener worldwide. For Gardening in Two Minutes, I'm Joy Baird. I'm Holly Baird. Inspired to grow more organic stuff? We are. To learn more about this Green Diva's Green Thumb episode and all kinds of other great green information, visit thegreendivas.com. That's T-H-E, greendivas.com. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It's a prayer used for cremation burials, but more and more people are adding ashes to trees. More about that after this. There's nothing like hot dogs on the grill, but as a mom, I have to be concerned about quality. That's why I buy tall grass beef hot dogs, 100% grass-fed beef, nothing artificial, gluten-free, and voted number one in taste by New York Magazine. If you want to give your family a great-tasting hot dog and one that's good for them, then your choice should be tall grass beef hot dogs. Easy to buy online at tallgrassbeef.com or ask for them at your favorite supermarket. Tall grass beef hot dogs, the healthy alternative. Buy them online at tallgrassbeef.com. 
What kind of tree do you want to be? A sturdy red maple or perhaps a swaying willow? Well, if the whole business of burial isn't your idea of going green, now you can become a thriving part of the planet by requesting a bio-urn for your final resting place. The urn is a fully biodegradable coconut shell that's packed with peat cellulose and the seed of the tree of your choice. And, of course, your ashes complete the urn. Once planted in the ground, the seed germinates, and before you can say dust to dust, you have become an important part of the landscape. With cemetery plots at a premium, you now have the option to provide your own shade. Literally. I'm Bill Curtis with Earth Matters. Green Divas and Dudes are all about creating and supporting a healthy and Earth-friendly economy. Listen to this segment to learn about one of our favorite green divas or dudes in business, doing good for people and planet. All right, this is a really cool segment here, and I mean like excessively cool. I personally am ashamed to say that I have never been to Bonnaroo. Yes, you may all, you know hate me now. But I want to go and I will one of these days. And I'm really excited to speak to uh, Laura Son. I, you know, I didn't even ask you how to pronounce your name. I usually do. Would you pronounce your name for me? That You got it right. I did? Oh, yeah. so shocked. She <laughs> is the director of Bonnaroo Sustainability. And I recently got sent their report from last year's show. And I was pretty darned impressed with because if you know anything about a rock and roll festival, you know that there's you know, a lot of consumption, a lot of things going on. And in order to lower that carbon impact, it's it's a lot of work. So I think it's pretty amazing what she's done. And let's say hi to Laura and uh, hear a little bit. Let's just first tell people what Bonnaroo is because maybe there's a few you know people like me who haven't been. I mean I know about it, but I just haven't gone. Yes, yeah, so Bonnaroo is um, a music and arts festival that takes place in Manchester, Tennessee, and we have about 80,000 people that come every year. Um, it's a primarily camping festival, and um, this will be our 15th year wow. of having the show. Yeah. I can't believe that. I mean, I, I really just, I, I just can't. Time is whizzing by here, and mm-hmm. and y'all really attract some wonderful, you know, the top artists. You know, want to talk about maybe, you know, who was there last year and who's expected? Some of the drop some names. Yes, um, this year we'll have Pearl Jam, Dead and Company, and LCD Sound System. Um, in the past, we've had everyone from. Elton John, Paul McCartney, Jay-Z, The White Stripes, Wilco. Wow. Wow. So there, there's five, there are five stages, and we have about 150 bands each year. And we get uh, fans that come from all 50 states and a number of countries as well. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's a party. It's a musical party. And how on earth do you take care of 80,000 people? <laughs> well, we have an incredible, incredible staff that um, a lot of them actually came out of the Grateful Dead and Fish Festival world yep. and have been with Bonnaroo since the beginning. And so coming out of, of that sort of um, value system of the Grateful Dead and Fish, I'm really lucky to be able to work with department heads and managers that have these kind of sustainable decision-making ingrained in their mindset and how they work um, and how they function. So um, it's, it's an incredible team effort to do what we do from the recycling and composting all the way down to um, the farm-to-table dinner that we have. So yeah. it, it's a great work that encompasses all areas of the festival. Okay, so for instance, I read in the report that last year there was something like 29,183 pounds of food. Uh, was that part of the mm-hmm. food recovery thing? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that was food that was you know not thrown away initially, right? 
Correct. And there's only four volunteers that managed all that? That's right. So we, this is one of my favorite programs, actually, because it is so small and it has a really huge impact. So the festival, um, it takes place in a rural part of Tennessee, Middle Tennessee, and um, a food bank approached us uh, about four years ago, and they wanted to, you know, start recovering food to have at their food bank. And um, so over time, we've expanded the program, um, and we work with the vendors that are out in the festival area, and then we have three different um, backstage catering operations that they get uh, they get their food daily from those operations and take it to the food bank. And then they freeze and store and repackage within the kind of, you know, framework that they can uh, with the health department and redistribute that food to this, you know, not heavily populated area, so it has a really high impact that wow. we do that. So oh, now, I just happened, and we talked about this before we, we started recording, but I have some connection to folks that are in the kind of rock and roll festival food catering business, which, believe it or not, there is an industry. Um, and, and I'm thinking to myself, so, you know, do all shows do this? Do the, do all shows gather? You know, so it must be an extra component for those that are preparing food in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, I'm actually not sure the answer to that question if other shows do it. Um, I know that within the music industry, you know, we all try to, you know, as I said earlier, yeah. make the most sustainable decisions we can. So I imagine that it we're not unique in that. Um, but I'm not sure a hundred percent. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm just thinking to myself that if I were, you know, catering a gig like that, that, that'd be a lot, a little extra work because, you know, you got, you got to find a way to, uh, corral and package up that food for, you know, future consumption of others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we work with them to make it as easy as possible, obviously. Um, but yeah, luckily the companies we work with are on board to support the work. And then the food vendors, you know, they don't, they like to leave with as little possible. So it helps them out um, to sort of lighten their load as they're leaving site. Sure. So you also, it, it looks like you work also pretty hard to make sure that you're sourcing most of the food locally. There were some very large numbers of of uh you know pounds or millions of pounds or whatever of of food that was brought in from local sources we try to work with our um food vendors to get them yeah to um source as much as possible regionally um it's you know it's another decision that helps their bottom line but it's also the sustainable one to make which as this kind of work has become more mainstream it helps us uh, steer people to make the right decisions um, when it helps, you know, it's cheaper for them to not have to carry it in. So we provide them with a list of purveyors and farmers within the area. Um, and then we do focus one, uh, a series of dinners in particular where everything we serve is sourced within a 200 mile radius of nice. the site. Wow. Yeah. Which is not always so easy to do, you know. It's not everywhere. We're lucky in Tennessee, though, I like to say, because we have, we have wonderful growers and producers um, from buttermilk to bacon to, you know, vegetables. So we're pretty lucky. So what are the big, what, what are the big challenges that you're facing now? Have they changed over the, the years that you've been there working on this? Well, I think... You know, general education that the that our that our patrons come to site with has changed for the better. We don't have to have someone standing right. at their recycling bins telling them where to put things. They sort of know that already. Um, but the biggest challenge remains, as you said in the opening, the whole festival is consumption, consumption, consumption. Right, right. Um, so you know. We we do as much as we possibly can, um, and I always tell people, you know, within the framework that it's still a music and arts festival, um, and we want people to have fun and enjoy themselves because, you know, part of part of the glory of the festival is 
losing yourself for a few days and just um, really being present and embracing what's happening. So, um, you know, we, we, we incorporate it as seamlessly as we can. Um, One of the programs we started a few years ago that's been, that people have been very receptive to is um, providing a stainless steel reusable beer cup. So, yeah, um, so we, you buy the cup, you get a dollar off all your refills. So there's a little bit of an incentive. And then, you know, it's also nice to not be drinking beer from a plastic cup, um, <laughs> exactly. at least personally. Um, so, you know, that's a program that um, betters the fan, better the fan's experience, makes it a better experience, and also um, helps us out. You know, the numbers are large. Um, I think we're up to, you know, 60,000 beer cups being diverted, you know, from our, and so those are diverted from our compost compost pile, but it's still waste that's just not happening, which is great. Yeah, exactly. So now your numbers, there, there are some amazing kind of totals in there. How different is it? Uh, year to year, is there a sort of a trajectory and what do you anticipate going on this year? What's new this year? Yeah, we, um, you know, we tend to, uh, things do tend to increase a little bit every year. Um, and I guess, you know, what we're lucky that we have so many people, our numbers get to be huge. Um, so right, they're impressive. I think it's, yeah, yeah. And I think it is in line though, like if we, you know, we're a 20,000 person festival, we would still be doing, you know, the uh, proportional numbers. Um, And, you know, new for this year, we, um, we've added a um, experimental farm to table dinner where we're going to create Bonnaroo's longest salad. So we're going to have a very long, long salad and people um, standing around sort of creating their own, dinner, so to speak, with all local vegetables. Um, yeah, that made and, me hungry. I read about that, and I was like, oh, oh, that, that's making me want to go make a salad right now. Yeah, and it's the, we work with um, Oxfam, which is an international poverty group, and then Eat for Equity, which does these kinds of grassroots dinners around the country in different communities to give people access to um, better food. So that'll be one of the new things. Um, There'll be a lot of sort of just expanding and growing our current programs this year as well. All right. Well, um, I'm looking forward to hearing more about this year. I don't think I'll be there this year, but <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna lobby hard to get me down there for the next one for sure. You should definitely be there. It is it is a sight to behold. Well, when, when every is year. when is it this year? The festival is. June 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th this year. And there are definitely still tickets available. Um, and it's a really incredible experience for everyone to have. So how can people find out more? Just go to Bonnaroo.com and all the information's there. There are a number of ways to experience the festival, and all of them are phenomenal. Well, thank you so much for taking some time out to speak with us today and uh, keep up the good work. We'll talk again. Thank you. Thanks for taking time for us as well. To learn more about this Green Divas and Dudes in Business segment and find even more about low-stress ways to live a deeper shade of green, please visit thegreendivas.com. That's T-H-E, greendivas.com. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. It's been said that if honeybees disappeared from Earth, within four years, humans would too. While many experts say this is exaggerated, we do rely on bees to pollinate one-third of the food we eat. But honeybees are in trouble. Habitat loss, parasites, and pesticide use have stressed bee populations. And now, climate change is squeezing their habitat and could throw plant pollination and growing cycles out of sync. So it's critical that we do everything we can to help honeybees survive. One challenge is that bees like to nest in small, box-like areas and will build hives in attics, porches, or other man-made structures. 
Walter Schumacher, the founder of the nonprofit Central Texas Bee Rescue, offers an alternative to extermination. We go places where honeybees are unwanted, and we relocate them and take them places where honeybees are wanted, such as school programs, master gardener programs, rooftops. The group also educates people about the critical importance of bees and how to maintain hives safely. Schumacher hopes that by sweetening the honeybees' reputation, more people will give them the support they need to survive a changing climate. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org. Being green can be so sexy. Well, at least you can be sexy and keep it green. Check out the Green Divas Eco Sexy Podcast for ways to keep it green in the bedroom or wherever you like to have sex. So we have another segment with the lovely Lindsay Hageman, who is the co-editor of Ecosexuality. She's also a co-creator of an event, an annual event called Ecosex Convergence. I think I read my handwriting right, which is out in uh, Washington State in an intentional community that she lives and participates in. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Megan. It's great to talk to you again. So... Today, we're going to talk a bit about cultivating erotic community and partnerships, uh, partnership with the earth, and what that means. So give us an idea what that means. (laughs) Sure. So in the last segment, we talked about the idea of erotic energy as renewable energy and how we can connect our erotic bodies on a daily basis with the earth and then share that energy with those in our lives and the projects that we care about and with the earth itself. And now one of the questions that arises out of that, I think naturally for a lot of people is, okay, I'm, I'm cultivating this erotic energy. I'm, I'm feeling connected and embodied uh, with the earth. Now, who do I share this erotic energy with? Right. Who do I, it's, it's such a precious and, and lovely part of myself, who do I share that with? And basically what I'm proposing, something that I, I practice, is reclaiming my own sexuality in the name of the earth. Um, and I have found that to be extremely empowering uh, when I no longer let my relationship or my, my relationships and my relationships to my body and to my desires and to my sexuality be defined by the consumer culture, yeah. uh, but instead having my relationship with the earth define how I feel about my body, who I want to share my body with, and how I express those desires. Okay, interesting. And and so how does that look? How does that manifest for, you know, maybe for you or, or what you've observed in other people who have been able to sort of connect this way? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say first it really starts as a solo journey. Right. Uh, and and arguably a needs to, sort yeah. of in understanding what one's own relationship is with the earth and, and with life itself. Right. Um, and then from there, for many, it evolves into including other people. And so I think about how sexuality is really, or how we share our sexuality, is more than a statement of personal attraction, if you will. Right. I feel that it really holds in it the seeds of, of spiritual expression. Mm. And it's the soil, if you will, within which the roots of, of revolution can grow. Um, people talk about the idea of intimacy politics. Oh, right. And then intimacy politics recognizes relationships, human relationships, and how and with whom we relate as the core unit of human culture. And so in how and how we share our lives with one another and with whom we share our lives really is a source of, of significant cultural change. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, our culture has relaxed a tiny bit from the sort of old-school religious concept, right? hmm hmm Yeah, and so when we choose for our intimate partnerships, the people that we bring most close into our lives, to, to really grow out of a 
a shared commitment to life right. and to the earth, perhaps a, a piece, a specific piece of land or a specific project. Okay. Um, when we choose for our intimate partners to be also be individuals who are working towards a shared vision of a regenerative culture or a gift-based economy or um, an ecological, uh, a culture that's based in ecological values, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we are aligning that very core creative energy with our values. So you spoke before and in between, I think, in the last uh, segment as well, about being in an intentional community. And so does this part of the culture of your intentional community? Certainly, certainly. And I think it's facilitated by the the notion of what an intentional community is, which is really a group of people that come together and, and live together with a shared vision, with a shared goal. And for the community that I live in, that that vision and that goal is creating uh, a culture that is both socially and ecologically sustainable. So when we talk about taking this and cultivating this erotic energy in a way that, I guess, shifts this intimacy, the politics of intimacy, and... Uh, now you have a group of people because, I mean, there's it's just uh, – I don't know. It's my experience in most people's like that when we're you know communicating with someone else or meditating with someone else or whatever you – you know when you're working with someone else on something intentionally, the energy is sort of exponential, right? Very much so. There's a synergistic effect, a feedback loop that happens. So if a group of people get together and, and they've decided like this is, this is what we're going to do and they kind of align their energies – Mm-hmm. Erotic or otherwise, uh, whatever you really want to call it. But if they, you know, those core, core, deep energies that connect us, um, then boom, like, you know, amazing things can happen, right? Yeah, it's incredibly powerful because it means that the ener- our individual life energy, which is arguably the most scarce resource that we have, I'm, I know I'm saying it's renewable, but it's also our most precious. Yeah. And that how we spend that time with whom we spend that time is so critical. So let's, let's uh, spend it, invest it in ways that has a compounding and multiplying effect. Rather than, we share, yeah. yeah, then rather than having it be like uh, diffusive or squandered. Or, mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> Cause when we, when we share, when we have intimate partners that are also aligned in our same values and are also spending their days working towards things that, that we believe to be creating a better world, it means that the energy that we're devoting to our loved ones is also that energy is then devoted back to to the earth because they are spending their day doing things that are revitalizing uh, the earth. And it means that the the joy and ecstasy that that we experience in, in sexual connection is then also channeled throughout our day to, to uh, fuel the daily activities, whatever those may be. In my case, it's you know, growing food and, mm-hmm. and caring for animals. And similarly, that in that process, I'm outside, I'm, I'm working with the earth, I'm connecting with those vital sources, and that then revitalizes me, and I can bring that back into my my sexual partnerships, which enliven and vitalize, and it just creates this, again, this cycle, the so, cycle of life. <laughs> so it's like this, yeah, yeah, the cycle of life, I, I see this, you know, Lion King scene there. But, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I can't help it. Um, so it's re-energizing, and it's it's kind of the this, this circle of life, but it's also rippling out in, in theory, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I'm having a visual. I like it. And I, as always, I appreciate uh, your commentary on, on this issue and, and the work that you've done with Ecosexuality Book. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much, Lindsay. Thank you, Megan. Turned on yet? Well, go to thegreendivas.com. That's T H E, greendivas.com. To learn more about this Green Diva's eco-sexy podcast and find other low-stress ways to live a deeper shade of green. I'm Ed Begley and you're listening to the Green Diva's radio show, the entertaining source for low-stress ways to live a deeper shade of green and take action for the earth. 
been way too long since I've had a chance to speak to this green dude superhero, Michael Green, who happens to have the name Michael Green. I love it. He is the executive director, among many things, by the way, he is the executive director of the Center for Environmental Health. He's a dad. Uh, He's a green dude, obviously. And I think at one point in his life, he was the Dalai Lama's garbage guy. Is that correct? That is true. (laughs) I don't know why I remember these little things. But anyway, so, you know, I was listening to one of the things, one of the shows that we feature on GDGD Radio is the podcast of CEH, Before You Leap. And I was listening one day, and it's such a great show, by the way. And uh, y'all, yeah, I, I really and so I don't normally hear Michael on that show, uh, Charles Margulis. I can't say it. No, say, you said it right. Okay, he does the show, and it's wonderful. But this particular time, I heard Michael, and he was addressing Congress about this Flint thing, and some of the other. I, I, I think it was you know uh, primarily about that. But I was like, oh, oh my gosh, there's my. My buddy Michael, and he sounds so good as he always does. And it made me think, I need to speak to him about this too. So he graciously agreed to talk to me. I think you're on vacation, so I'm just really grateful (laughs) I could get you. Uh, Anyway, hi, Michael. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you for saving me for a few minutes from my kids getting the crap out of each other. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's always entertaining on vacation, right? You need a vacation from vacation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this Flint crisis is, I mean, you've been working on things like the, this all along, but it's but it's raised awareness for people because uh, it is a crisis. And we thought we'd use that as a backdrop to kind of introduce uh, 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 some other ideas that you have, but let me just shut up for a minute and listen to you. Uh, first of all, I love your show. You're so <laughs> awesome. Um, I, 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 even though, even the episodes I'm not on, but I'm, I'm not. And uh, uh, I want to give a little context. Ten years ago, I got married in New Orleans, eight months after Katrina. Nice. And in, and in our preparation for that wedding, you know, we went there a few times shortly after the storm. And and I got to uh, tour the most uh, most affected communities. I got to uh, go with scientists and discover what were the long-term potential health implications, such as all the new lead deposition in the soil. And um, and I was deeply moved by the fact that the communities that were most harmed were the same communities that are most frequently harmed by other environmental health hazards. Right. And those low-income communities of color were not especially harmed when Katrina hit by accident. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a coincidence. What it was, it was a manifestation of infrastructure that is designed to perpetuate disproportionate impacts for some communities over others. And yeah. those communities are the ones that have less political power, right. and those are usually low-income communities of color. Yeah. So why do I tell that story? Mm-hmm. I tell that story because Flint isn't a one-off. It's got to be seen in the context of how is it that this happened, that this community has now these thousands of children who are potentially at neurological risk forever. Yeah. And, and, and so um, what happened was that the city didn't have a lot of money. The state didn't want to invest. And then the state made some really big errors that they wouldn't have made in a more in, in, a, in an environment in a situation where that right. community was more well resourced. Yeah. So when they tried to exclude the CDC scientists because they were fighting over turf, yeah. well, that that wouldn't happen in an affluent community. The the turf battle between the the state folks wanting to say no, we got this, yeah. um, would have been trumped by the by the you know, the outcry of a community that would have been more likely to have been hurt. Right. So, so that's a big context, and that's like, yeah. you know, that, that requires change at the meta level. Yeah. We, the other thing is that prevention is much more affordable than fixing massive problems like this. If you just look at it from a fiscal perspective, you know, uh, 
not to not to get to the kids yet. Um, it's so much less expensive to prevent crises like this than to um, than to try to deal with them after. Yeah. So so when we're looking at the solution, the solution is that we're going to have to now invest a ton of money in pipes all around the country that don't have lead in them. Right. And right now, we got to start with schools. So if you look at, at Baltimore, they've been having bottled water in the schools since 2007. And the reason they're having bottled water is because they decided it was too expensive to fix the pipes. Oh, so the, wow. So, so we're just, we're a little bit in a pickle around these issues. But... <sighs> That's that's the metal. <laughs> a little bit of a pickle. Oh my God! Bottled water since that's crazy. Well, because tearing out the pipes is expensive. Yeah, and of course you and, you don't want the kids to be drinking lead water. I understand that, but you know there are uh, water state water filtration stations that pe- kids can get their own water bottles and fill them. I know they have installed them in some right. schools. Right, and so they 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 could certainly do that and that's what a lot of places have done was at least at those drinking fountains they can put in water filtration systems if people if people who are listening are worried about their water in their home they could go to a website that ceh participates it's 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 a a coalition a really great coalition called healthy babies brighter futures hbbf and if people go to hbbf.org they can order a water kit that will it'll get mailed to their home They'll fill up their the the kit with water. They'll send it back, and they'll find out if there's lead in their water at their home. And what I especially like about this project um, at HBBF.org is that um, you can either pay the actual cost of what it costs HBBF to do this, or you can pay zero, or you can pay three times their cost so that you'll pay for two other people. So the idea is that for as long as possible, even though they weren't they're not going to be able to afford to test every, you know, buddy's water in the country. They're going to be able to sort of crowdsource the ability for people who can't afford it to be able to have that water tested. That is a great concept, and I'm glad that they're making it accessible for those that may have difficulty. Uh, I don't know how much it costs. Do you happen to know what the average yeah. cost is? So the actual cost is $65, oh. and then there's but you can do it for 0 or for 12 or for 50 or you can pay – you know, if you want to pay for 10 people, then you can do that, too. Um, so so I think that's a really cool project. I'm really uh, happy that, that we at the Center for Environmental Health are involved in that. I, I want, can I talk for a minute about the kids who live in Yes, there? yes. So, so when I testified uh, on Capitol Hill about this last month, their congressman, Kildee, Congressman Kildee, he was there, and I was, I was really moved by this guy. I, I'm a little jaded about D.C. I left D.C. a long time ago. Um, and this is the kind of guy who you actually want representing us in Congress. And so he talked about this one girl that he spoke to her and her mother, and, and the girl who was nine said, I'm afraid I won't be smart. And, and so then what Congressman Kildee said was so deep. He said that the most terrible outcome of this might actually be people's lo- changes in people's life expectations. Yeah, I can't imagine when it when when I read about the implications of young children being exposed to these levels and the fact that they may be neurologically, I will, I, I want to say like impaired a little, you know, whatever. I I don't know what the right words are, but they're going to have an impact for life. It's irreversible. Mm-hmm. And I and I think about my children and and my grandchildren, and I think, wow. So uh, at this, so there's two kinds of things you can when you speak on Capitol Hill. Sometimes, so so I've spoken at both, uh, at both at hearings and at briefings. And the difference is that at a briefing, the public can ask questions. It's more, you know. So of course, some of the members of Congress come and they speak and they ask questions. But then the the public can ask questions too, and it's a much bigger room. Okay. And so there's just a lot more people there for a briefing, but it's not the formal testimony like when the tobacco guys all stood up with their hands. You know, that famous picture. And so because this was a briefing, I got sort of to take the temperature of the people who were in the room besides CNN and, you know, NBC and all of them. And what I saw was something super interesting, and that is that the advocates that, 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 and this is back to the, that this this is an environmental justice issue. The, The advocates for children's health, 
who were more wonky like me. They wanted to ask him questions about things like, what do we do for those thousands of kids, those yeah. 9,000 kids right now? Right, right. Smaller classes, early head start, better nutrition, um, you know, putting in water filters in all the school drinking fountains, things like that. But what the folks who wanted to, um, whose, you know, perspective is more about uh, uh, the disproportionate impact on communities, the environmental justice issue, and these were mostly people of color who asked these questions, yeah. were very different categories of questions. Mm. Equally as important. It wasn't like one was more important than the other, but just right. profoundly different. What they wanted to talk about was the root causes of the problems and how we can fix those root causes. Right. And and that comes back to what I said a moment ago about the prevention is cheaper than fixing a crisis. And I, I was just really struck by the difference in perspective from the folks who were from Flint or who were thinking about uh, Flint from the perspective of those communities versus the, the folks who wanted to walk out about what do we do for these specific 9,000 kids. Right, right. They, they, how, do, how do we deal with the situation at hand right now? What's also scary but good is that all these other communities are waking up, they're testing their water. Newark has a problem. Our, our, uh, one of the largest hospitals near me where my husband had surgery or whatever, they have a lead issue. Um, and this is all since since that news, everybody's beginning to pay attention, which is good and scary. But I wonder, like, what are we doing, not just with lead, with other contaminants. And I know this is the kind of thing, exactly the kind of thing you all are looking at, but what are we doing to future generations, uh, to their brains, to their capacity to, I don't want to say intelligence, but, you know, certain abilities may be diminished if we continue to poison ourselves and our children, right? Yeah. And we have the risks and the, and the benefits of living in such an incredible age with such uh, rich uh, technology and, frankly, affluence. Yeah. So I'm talking to you on a phone that I carry around in my pocket, <laughs> which has a computer in it that is stronger than the computer we used to put the man on the moon in yeah. 1969. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, it, it's a miracle. It's a freaking miracle. And, and so there are great benefits to it. Right. <clears throat> and, then there, and, and then there are risks associated with the fact that we've got you know, over 80,000 chemicals that we're using... American businesses are using. So, so this is clearly one of the, the, the downsides. One thing we could do is we could um, demand that companies take responsibility for the lead. So, yeah. um, you know, for example, example Sherwin-Williams, they still sell lead paint in developing countries. Wow, and really? So, there, so there's a petition at change.org. I'm, I'm doing a lot of pitching for other nonprofits today. <laughs> but um, there, uh, there's a petition at change.org to force them to, you know, to challenge them to not do that anymore. And um, so um, people can go there and they can actually have an impact on protecting kids from lead. I just can't believe it. Wait, I'm just, I'm just still astonished that there's still lead paint going out in the world, even though we know it's not good. Well, what they say is that it's not for sale for residential consumers, but they also know that that's not true. Right. And they know that, especially when you're sending it to a developing country, you know, if they ship, uh, you know, a container with ten thousand cans of paint, they don't know where those paint, where that paint's going. Right. So, right. so, I mean, they they've got sort of a cover your ass kind of uh, angle for a response, but in reality, it's just that they just want to make another quick buck before the party's over. Uh. Um, uh, but I, I feel like I've talked about some negative stuff. Can I tell a positive story? Yes, please. But totally related. <laughs> so I I noticed on your website that Jessica Alba who's one of the founders of The Honest Company, right. was also on the show. Yeah. And, um, and we are doing this project with, with her company, with The Honest Company, that is really cool. And what we're doing is we're educating child care centers about how to eliminate toxic chemicals from that environment where those toddlers and babies are. So my wife and I both work full-time, which right. means that I took three months off when each of my kids was born. She took three months off when each of our kids was born. And then at six months, they went to preschool yeah. or to childcare. Mm -hmm. And in that environment, 
um, you know, and there's tens of thousands of these facilities around the country, and some of them are just in someone's home with six kids, like where we sent ours. Where my grandchildren and, go, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so those kids are potentially being exposed to lots of toxic stuff, or they're potentially in a very healthy environment, but they're there all day, five days a week. Yeah. And so this project we're doing is we are creating educational materials and training programs for those uh, child care centers so that these kids are in a healthy environment. And then my subversive aspiration <laughs> is that if this goes really well, then those uh, child care providers who yes. are not necessarily well-educated and yeah. they're definitely not well-compensated yeah. are going to then be telling the parents, oh, you should use this, this kind of thing in, in your home because it doesn't have that chemical in it. Right. And, and, and so there's a potential to actually totally get, change the game around toddlers and infants' exposure to toxic chemicals, basically preschoolers. It's um, freaking brilliant. Yeah, it's really cool. It's brilliant. I love it. I love it. I, oh, my gosh. I am very excited about that because I think you're right. And I think – like when I think about my grandchildren, like I, I've been calculating. Like I know my daughter uses some filtered water and I'm thinking, but what about what about where they, you know, their, their daycare? What about them? I have to go talk to them. <laughs> and, well, and also that's a two-way conversation because I remember – you know, I do this stuff for a living. But still I remember when I – when my kids were very young – and I would ask, uh, her name is Dolma. Dolma was the woman who was, uh, whose house my kids were at when they, before they went to preschool. Mm-hmm. And I would ask her all the time, well, what do you do about this? And what do you do about that? Right. And then I would go home and I would do it yeah. because I figured she knew better than me. Uh-huh. So there's this great opportunity that yeah. it's not just me checking up on them, but them checking up on me. Yeah, yeah. Why not? We're all sharing information, helping each other, you know. Well, I like that you brought a positive story to the table because we try to focus on that because some of this stuff is just devastating <laughs> otherwise, you know? And and you're very good at that and I'm so grateful that you took some time out today to talk with me and our audience about what's going on but bring it into the context of that there are some solutions and there are people working on it and it's not all bad. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, well, Michael, all right. We will talk again soon, I hope. Okay. Thanks so much, Meg. I love what you're doing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Green Divas radio show. Listen to the latest Green Divas shows every day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on GDGD Radio at gdgdradio.com or get the GDGD Radio app for free. Or access our huge catalog of podcasts on demand on your favorite podcast network, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and of course, along with all kinds of great posts about living a deeper shade of green on thegreendivas.com. That's T-H-E, greendivas.com. Greendivas.com.